Since you're way back there in the back, I anticipate asking you a lot of questions. So the rest, so the rest of us can take part in that conversation too. As you always have happened, I will hand out rosters and, or sorry, um, syllabi. One, two, three, four, five. I'm not going to read it to you because it's not third grade. But I will encourage you to read it uh, in your time between now and Wednesday. I am going to go over a couple of the more important points in the syllabus. Like, how do you get an A? Uh, is that a good one? You want to go over that? Yeah. yeah, let's go over that. That's an important one. I'm not going to read off what we're going to do on which day and things like that. Um, you don't, I will go so far as to say you don't necessarily need to even have the syllabus in front of you, right? I've PowerPointed all of the important salient points that we need to cover. Read the rest of it, though. It has things like attendance policy and uh, what to do in case of various situations and things like that, okay? I will also see you on Wednesday for lab, right? Okay, um, just so you know, um, especially now since we have Blackboard site, you get a Blackboard site. If any of you are on the Blackboard, have you used the Blackboard before? Um, we now have a separate Blackboard site for both the lecture and the lab, okay? We used to kind of roll those together and we would post lab things occasionally in the Blackboard. Since we can do this separately, I'm gonna treat them separately. So I'm gonna kind of keep lecture in lecture and I'm gonna kind of keep lab in lab. So I'm not going to really talk about lab very much today, if at all. Okay, we'll talk about lab on Wednesday afternoon, okay? Okay? Good. Um, so you can be trained to respond. Anybody's been to a, a high school or a business birthday party or something like that, or third grade even, you had a birthday party. It was somebody's birthday. I'm sure cupcakes were involved or something like that, right? And tang, right? And uh, we, the teacher would say, let's sing happy birthday. To, uh, to the student. And so the class would all kind of, oh, me, 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 you know, get your singing voices on. And then you would sing a horrible funeral dirge to the student, <laughs> right? Happy birthday to you. Kind of like that. You know what I mean? This has happened before. We've all heard of this situation, right? Um, I like to have a conversational class, okay, where we have conversations and I ask you things and you respond and that kind of stuff. It's not hard to do. I like to think I'm a fairly personable guy. Um, when I ask a question, if anybody has any questions or would you like to go over that again, and I hear nothing but the crickets in the back row, um, I get startled and I turn around to make sure my class is still awake, right? So I like to at least get some sort of validation uh, in some way for my self-esteem, if nothing else, that um, if I say, anybody have any questions about anything? If we don't have to be exciting about it, we can just kind of do one of these funeral dirge responses of no, and that'll be fine with me. All good? Yep. That was far more exciting than it has to be, right? I don't need jumping jacks or anything like that, you know? But uh, that's great, that's great, right? Because then we can get some sort of auditory information that we're okay and we can move forward uh, and everything, and all is well, okay? And I like that. No, any questions so far? Nope. Great, see that was a test, it was your first test. You all passed with flying colors. All right, uh, this is Biology 101. Uh, this is where you're supposed to be if, you, if you're taking Biology 101. Uh, if you like how this class is going so far, but you're not in it, right? You should probably hurry up and enroll if you can. Uh, these classes fill up quick, though, okay? Um, so uh, I also teach a 6.30 a.m. class. Does anybody want to take that instead? 
That's a good class. They're, they're very responsive. They're more responsive than you think. Um, but uh, with them, at 6.30 in the morning, I have the same task uh, that I have here at 12.30, a full six hours later, right? Uh, the last thing that I want to do is bore you, okay? Do you want to be bored in a hot room for the next hour and 15 minutes? No. Okay, so we have shared responsibility here, right? I keep the class moving forward, innovative, interesting as possible, right? And you do everything you can to make that happen as well, right? Because it's not just about me that keeps this class interesting. It's also about you. After all, the money flows this way, right? <laughs> and the information flows that way, right? Am I paying you to be here? Are you paying me to be here? You, someone you love, or the government, okay, is paying me to teach you biology. Um, so take part in that, okay? Get your money's worth. And if you feel like you're not getting your money's worth from other instructors, you should demand your money's worth out of them, okay? So I'm here for you. Cooperative? Yes, absolutely. All right, so who am I? What equips me to teach this class anyway? I am Dr. Paul Fitzgerald. Okay, um, I have a master's degree in evolutionary biology from Southeast Missouri State University. Anybody? Boot Heel in Missouri? No? You've never been? Shocking, right? Uh, it's, it's a fun place. Um, Southeast Missouri State University, like I said, great place to get a biology degree. Um, I have a PhD in geology from the University of California in Davis, right outside of Sacramento in the Central Valley. Beautiful place. Uh, it's about a mile away, uh, about an hour away from everything that we'd want to do. Uh, Lake Tahoe, Napa Valley, San Francisco, you know, San Jose, beautiful, beautiful place. People tend to take a long time to get their PhDs from UC Davis because you get very comfortable when you live there. It's like, I don't want to graduate. I want to stay here for as long as I can. <laughs> After about four or five years, though, they, they graduate you and kick you out and, and send you off into the world. So uh, with a master's degree in evolutionary biology and a PhD in geology, what's that about? Geology? What do I do for a living? I am a... Sort of. I go both ways, um, depending on who's asking. I can either be a geologist or a, or a biologist. This is what I do for a living. I get out of trucks uh, in big, desolate regions like Nevada, and I look down. What am I looking at here? I'm looking at this. There is both biology and geology in this slide, right? Uh, there's three interesting things here, not the least of which is the hammer, Okay, my tool of choice. Um, you see the cute little toad up here in the front is not related to what I do with the hammer, just so you know, right? Every, everybody lived through the, the, making of this, uh, the making of this slide and the taking of this picture, all right? Um, you see some other things in here that's interesting? Plant Maybe fossils. some in the front. Yeah, what are these little things right fossils. down? Oh, the plants. Who said plants? I am more intrigued by the shelly things in the rock than I am uh, the plants, all right? Um, because I am a pay. Leontologist, okay? Hey, come on in. Uh, which means my view of biology is a historical one, right? When I think about biology, I think about its history on the earth, what things have happened to the earth and how do they affect the living systems that live upon it, right? What does this mean for your biology 101 class? We're just gonna sit around and talk about dinosaurs all day? No, it'd be nice, right? I would be fine with that, right? But I have to teach you other things as well, right? We need to talk about the foundations of biology. These organisms that are captured in the fossil record live by the same rules as living systems do today, right? So we have to talk about uh, two things in particular. Where do you get your energy and where do you get your carbon? Okay, and what do you do with it? Okay, um, pretty much you do two things with it. You grow and you make more copies of yourself, okay? And everything else, is details, okay? So for the next 16 weeks, we're gonna be talking about those details, right? Aerobic respiration, uh, details. Photosynthesis, 
details, right? It's all part of the same game, right? How do I get my energy and where do I get my carbon? Okay, sound good? Excellent, excellent. Um, are you going to get the historical perspective on photosynthesis and aerobic respiration? Absolutely, absolutely. We'll talk about the evolution of these things too, right? Because that's how I tend to think about them. I don't think about, I think about photosynthesis today, right? And what plants are doing outside, but I also think about how does that biochemical reaction evolve in the first place, right? What do the earliest plants do? How does a plant go from being in the water to being a land plant? What happened to the evolution of the vascular system and plants and things like this, right? Um, so you're going to get probably more history than you might have thought that you would, right? You're going to get a lot of biochemistry and things like that too. But I like to try to put it in a larger perspective for you because that makes it to you, who may or may not be a science major, far more useful. And I would probably argue far more interesting as well. Or we can talk about electrons all day and bonding energy and all that kind of fun stuff too, which we'll talk about a little bit, right? But I like to keep it the, the larger picture in mind here because you don't live in electrons. You live in, on the earth and you interact with things that are about your size and your shape. Right, um, and you eat plants and sometimes meat and things like that. So I wanna make these things accessible to you as a Northern Virginia resident as I can. All right, um, this is the required textbook, but this is not the actual book book, okay? This is the one that I get, okay? It's the full copy of the Campbell text. Do you have the half copy? Is that correct? I think it's green. Yeah. Does anybody have one of those with you? Oh, that's the beast. Okay, this is the first half of it, okay? Um, the second half of it is about that size. And the second half of it you'll use in Biology 102 if you should decide to take that. Um, as it is, if you get the hardcover whole version of it like they give the instructors, it'll run you about 180 or $190, right, in total. Um, if you have that, that's fine. It's the same book that you would have uh, if you took the half versions. If somebody grandfathered you, so to speak, a, a Campbell Biology textbook, that's fine as well. Um, in Biology 102, you'll get the second half if you decide to do that. Um, and how much, you, how much is that these days at the bookstore? I'm not sure. You, you charged it, right? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, <laughs> ah, the modern economy. Oh, it was right. 105, yeah, so it's better than the 200, right? So what we're trying to prevent here, you just want to take Biology 101 and you have to buy a $200 textbook. That's a little much to ask, right, of a student. So we, we combined with the publishers and got this half version split. Um, have you flipped through it at all, the book? Yeah. What do you think? Um, I'm already it's a pretty serious textbook, right? Yeah. Anybody else flip through their textbook? Should you have flipped through your textbook already? Yeah. Ah, maybe, maybe not, right? I'll leave that for what it is. Um, it's a really technically precise, jam-packed, high-density textbook, right? Um, if you took biology somewhere else uh, or in high school, it's kind of this conversational sort of textbook, kind of introductory to biology kind of thing. The Campbell textbook is not that, okay? This Campbell textbook, although it is fairly expensive, is absolutely positively the gold standard textbook for biology in modern undergraduate colleges, right? It is an absolutely fabulous textbook. It really is the best one you can have. The downside is it's a little dry, okay? Harry Potter it ain't, okay? Or I guess I should say Twilight, right? It, it ain't, right? I just showed my age, I think. Um, uh, but it's jam-packed with information. Oftentimes, uh, in some of the other Nova campuses even, right, we, we have the textbook that we use and occasionally we would have to add some supplemental materials to it. And that really is not the case with this book, right? It is technically complete with modern college level introductory biology. So although you're paying a three digit number, you're getting a really good book, okay? And we'll use the whole thing. We'll use the whole thing. So you'll definitely get your money's worth out of it. 
Uh, this is the lab manual. It's called the Biology Experience. Um, I think it runs about 40 or 50 over at the bookstore. You don't need to get that today, but you should have it by Wednesday. Okay, um, and we're going to, uh, like I said, we're going to keep lab and lecture kind of separate from each other. I'm not going to give you a lab syllabus today. We'll do that uh, on Wednesday. I'll probably post something to the Blackboard between now and then and send you an email. Okay, but you should definitely go to the bookstore and pick it up if you haven't already. Anybody get this? Anybody have any trouble getting it? It's all good? There's a lot of biology classes, so there's about a million of them over there. It's in like a different spot. It might be. It might be. Like there's a shelf for all the bio, the first book you showed mm -hmm. us, and then it's like off in the corner down in a different shelf. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it. make sure you get both. Make sure you get both. Um, there's really no reason that I can think of why you should have to bring the Campbell textbook to class. Okay, lab manual, of course, you should have with you for every lab. The textbook, I don't anticipate that. I'm not going to say, uh, okay, so everybody for the next 10 minutes, read chapter, whatever. You know, um, and I'm certainly not going to have you referencing your textbook in the middle of class anyway. So I want to have you here with me tuned in. Okay, so unless you're on some sort of innovative new dietary exercise weight loss program, don't lug around a 20, 20 pound textbook with you everywhere you go. It's not, it's not something that you need to do. All right, so getting into the nitty gritty of the details here, lecture, what you do in here with me from 1230 to 145 is worth 75% of your biology 101 grade. Okay, so at the end of the year when you get your transcripts, you'll have one grade for Biology 101. Um, you won't have a separate lab and lecture letter grade. Okay, so the lab is a component of your overall 101 grade. So 75% of that 101 grade you will do in here with me. Okay, and one from 1230 to 145, Monday and Wednesday. The other 25% is the lab. Okay, so at the end of the semester, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take your overall percentage that you have in lecture, and I'm going to multiply by 0.75. I'm going to add that to your overall percentage in lab and multiply that times 0.25. And that's going to give me your score for both weighted 25 to 75. Okay? All right. That being said, I want to focus on the 75%. Okay? So like I said, I'll talk about lab when I talk about lab. For the rest of this, okay, the 75% that is the lecture, I will give you three exams. Okay? Each one of them is going to be worth 15% of your lecture grade, okay? Um, so your exams are worth a little less than half of that, of that 75%. As I've aged and matured in my own teaching, uh, I've started to slowly kind of downgrade the component of exams and kind of upgrade homework a little bit. I don't know why I'm doing that, maybe I'm a softy. I don't know. Um, when I first started this, it was like 75% of your grade is exams and 25 is homework and that kind of stuff. And I've slowly been adjusting that. Um, so uh, your final exam then is worth 25%. I just have to make it a little bit more than the regular exams uh, because it's going to be, well, everything that we talk about for 16 weeks, right? Um, and that leaves 30% left over uh, for this 101 lecture. And that's going to be homework assignments, quizzes, things like that as I see fit to, to give them. I'll give you fair warning for these kind of things. Right, I'm not really hot on the pop quiz. You know, um, I, I'm not, I've never found a place for it in my, in my teaching style. So I'll give you fair warning when there's gonna be a quiz. Usually. Right. Okay, any questions about that? No. Uh, I've never seen much of a reason to just not go 90, 80, 70, 60. At the end of the year, they like me to put a letter next to your name. Right, I like to put A's and B's. I don't like to put D's and F's and things like that. So. Let's make this situation mutually comfortable. Just get an A, right, and everything will be fine. 
right? Um, I tend to not curve too much from that, but I will adjust individual exams. If the highest grade in the class is a 95%, um, I'll usually bump everybody up five points. You know, I'll, I'll usually give the, the highest performer in the class 100% and adjust everybody accordingly. Uh, my logic for that, um, if the most studious, uh, well-researched and uh, intensive student in the class can get a 95%, why couldn't they get 100? <laughs> you know, um, the, the, the answer to that in my own mind is that it's my fault, right? Uh, you're responsible then for 95% of it if you do your job right, and I've done 5% of a bad job of teaching biology. Right, so uh, by bumping that highest score up to 100, I can sort of erase that in my own mind anyway. Good? Yeah, so, okay, so um, after I do that, okay, and it's, uh, I've never had a, a test that I've ever given where the highest score wasn't just a normal A anyway, so I'm not gonna bump somebody from a 35% up, uh, up to a 100. There are no catastrophes, right? Uh, usually there aren't anyway. Um, so it's usually, you know, single digit adjustments that I make, but after that, you know, there's always plenty of A's, plenty of B's and that kind of stuff, right? Uh, why am I making such a big deal out of this whole exam thing and, and convincing you that you can do well? Do your other instructors do that? Kind of. Do you, what do you think about multiple choice exams? Do you like them? Sometimes. Yeah. One, like one teacher messed with me and all the answers were A. Yeah, they do that I sometimes. I second guess myself, so I'm just like, well, no. So, I'm going to prevent that situation from happening. Cool. We're not going to do multiple choice. It's all short answer essay. So it'll be fine. Right? So no, you don't have to get a Scantron. But you do get partial credit for things, right? If you know half the answer, you write half the answer, and it's all good. Um, that being said, I don't want to freak you all out. I didn't just make 10 people drop my class, did I? <laughs> right? um, I'll be posting study guides and things like that beforehand. Um, to get you prepared for these kind of things because college students are not, well, let me just say it, not particularly good at thinking about something on the spot and writing a well-formulated, clearly written answer to things. I'm not particularly good at that, right? Um, so practice is involved. So I'll send out a study guide about a week before each exam. You can use that as a test of, your, of its own right, right? You can go through it, answer the questions, write out answers to them, practice for taking a, having a biological question posed to you and writing an answer to it. The best thing that you can do to get ready for these, what do you think? Study, study by yourself with somebody else, right? And you and you can actually have a conversation about what the heck does he mean by the Calvin-Benson cycle, right? Um, when you just kind of have these study guides and you kind of read through it to yourself on a, what is it, Monday? On a Sunday night, right? After you've watched your allotted Fox reruns, right? Um, you're gonna go through these and you're gonna read them and you go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah, that makes sense, right? And you're kind of gonna not pay as much attention to it as you could. If I say, do you understand what I'm asking here? You're gonna say yes. But if I say, here, write down a response to this, exact same question, and it might be a catastrophe. Right? A lot of times you don't know that you don't know what you're talking about until you try to communicate it with somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Yes? Yeah. Anybody have that situation arise before where you thought you weren't full of it, but it turns out that you are? Yep. <laughs> That's happened to me too, okay? Um, so the best thing to do, and this was true when I was getting my PhD as well, if you don't know whether or not you know the answer to something, either try to write out an answer to it or at least try to talk to somebody about it. Because if I say, hey, what do you think about the Calvin-Benson cycle? And you know, and it makes sense to you in your own head, or you might think you know what you're talking about or what it is, but when it actually comes down to communicate that, either in writing or, vi or you know, vocally, it might be a catastrophe, right? Um, so you can use these study guides as practice. So there will be no surprises on the exams. Right? It's not going to be, oh, I need to write about the Industrial Revolution or anything like that. You know, it's, it's all going to be no different than anything else. 
Um, and ultimately, just so you know, numerous studies have been done which demonstrate that students do no better or no worse on multiple choice versus a written, a written exam, right? So you like multiple choice so you get A's all the time on them? Please. Yes? No, you don't. I didn't. It's a con job, right? Um, I, I make a multiple choice exam. I have one right answer, one wrong answer, and two trick questions that I try to get you to mistakenly respond to, right? And I don't want it to be a con job. I just want to answer, ask a question and have you answer it. Good? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so you want to know how to get an A. This is why we're here today, right? How do I actually do well in this class? Um, I'm not saying that if you do these things, you're going to get an A. What I'm saying is um, people in my classes who have done these things in the past tend to do better, right? The people who have get, gotten A's in the past tend to do these kinds of things, okay? People in the past who get A's usually come prepared to class. Now, again, I've told you this already, but I'm not an idiot, right? I was an undergraduate once. Did I always do the assigned reading before class? No, I didn't do the years. And I got a PhD, right? So it, it's, it's not a guarantee of failure if you don't, right? What you don't want to do is get far behind with the reading. Because like I said, we're going to go through, if you have the whole Campbell, the first half, if you have the half book, you'll go through the whole thing, OK? Um, and it brings up an interesting question about what the role of a textbook actually is, right? You don't learn material by reading a textbook, do you? No. I do not learn material from reading a textbook. Do you? No, who does, right? So why buy a $100 book if you can't learn from it? What's it for? Helping. helping that was the vaguest thing you could have possibly said. <laughs> Help, helping. Helping. Uh, what does it do? What's, what, do you, what do you do it for? It's a reference book, right? It gives you another way to access information and a written record of it as opposed to just uh, listening to me go on and on and on like I obviously do. What else? Doorstop. Cup holder, right? What else? Yeah, level the table, right? What do you What do you do? Yeah, it has good pictures, right? Um, and I know for a fact that Campbell Book has very, very good, complete, and thorough pictures in it, right? So you can get a visual record of the material at the same time. Why read before class and not after? Yeah, both of you are absolutely right, right? Um, let's come. I'll combine these two. It gets you participating. Okay, with your own educational experience. Now, you thought, I thought what you said was vague, what I just said was equally vague. You realize that, okay? Um, if you read the book beforehand and you have absolutely no idea what the chapter is even beginning to talk about, it looks like English and it looks like complete sentences and it's punctuated correctly, but the content doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to you, right? Um, you can use that as a guide, okay, about what kinds of things that you're looking at that make absolutely no sense to you. And we can focus on that kind of stuff. Y'all, you still with me in the back? Okay, good. Got to check in with my peeps in the back, right? Um, we, we can use that to make sure that we're thinking about these things beforehand so we can at least get some kind of better sense in lecture about whether we're talking about uh, things clearly, right? And what kind of things you need to focus on. Now, what you said about participation and keeping you with it, um, is that you? No, no I, I started saying that and I realized I was getting it wrong. What you were talking about, um, if you're not doing the assigned reading, okay, and you're getting really, really far behind on it, that's not necessarily guaranteeing failure, but that's a symptom of something, right? That's a symptom of not, of not putting as much time into it as you probably should, 
right? So if you're thinking, mm, I haven't read the book in about four or five weeks, uh, why did I buy this book anyway? You probably shouldn't be surprised if you're spending that little time with the material uh, when you don't do particularly well in the exams, right? So it's not necessarily reading the book for content so much as it is doing the readings as a guide to make sure that you're at least thinking about the material and the content enough to guarantee some kind of success. Right, so it's not that doing the reading is a necessarily a very extraordinarily good thing that you must do all the time, although it can be useful, right, to keep you in tune with what you're gonna be covering that day. But when you start realizing that you're not keeping up with the readings, that can be a, a symptom of, of sliding or slipping behind, which you don't necessarily wanna do. We got 16 weeks, right? We, we're gonna spend some time with each other, right? And by about weeks five or six, you're gonna get pretty comfortable. Right? And eh, yeah, the weekend, eh, I can do it next week. Ah, eh, you know, eh. and you, you kind of get this kind of, I don't want to call it laziness, right? But you get, you just get comfortable with the situation, right? And you want to make sure you stay on it, okay? So pay attention to your reading habits, okay? Now, I'm not going to say do the assigned reading before class all the time and wag my finger at you because, like I said before, with the, uh, with the other items, it's not third grade. Okay, you know what you need to do to succeed, right? I just, I just can do a little bit to point out some of the things that I've seen in the past that foster student success. And staying in, up with the reading is a symptom of spending enough time with the material. Okay, um, my office is right across the way. I was right down the hall in room 106. That's listed on the syllabus. I have a lot of office hours during the week uh, and they're all listed on the syllabus as well. Uh, feel free to stop by anytime during my office hours. I'm here a lot anyway when I'm not in my office hours. Um, if it's not a scheduled office hour and you want to have a convo, hey, I might actually be here. Stop by and knock on the door and see if I'm around, okay? But I will be there during my office hours all the time. If none of those office hour times are convenient for you, feel free to go ahead and uh, ask me if we can spend some other time uh, and make an appointment. I'm more than happy to do that. I'm here all the time anyway. I never leave. I'm cl this close to sleeping on the floor of my office, all right? I'm, I'm here all the time anyway. Uh, so again, you're paying pretty good money. You're somebody you know is uh, in order for me to teach you biology and me being accessible and answering your questions outside of class is a part of that as well. So don't be a stranger if you wanna come by. Um, I am never going to tell you to do the answers in the back of the chapter for homework because you don't wanna get out a three ring binder and write a bunch of answers to obscure, poorly worded, confusing questions. And I know for a fact that I do not want to read them. Okay, because you're gonna scribble your name on the top of it, you're gonna tear it out, and you're gonna give it to me, and it's gonna look bad, it's gonna be poorly written, and I just don't wanna do it. I'd rather pull my own eyes out, to be honest with you, than read 28 poorly written pages of questions in the back of the chapter, right? However, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do them, okay? They're there for you, they're a resource. Um, if you look at those questions in the back of the chapter and you find out that you have absolutely no idea what these questions are even asking for, that again, is information that you can use, okay? Um, if you do go through the questions in the back of the book, then hey, you're all good, right? Maybe that's a sign that you're, you're pretty good with that chapter and you can go ahead and move on, okay? So yeah, if you wanna write down the answers, that's fine, just don't give them to me, right? Um, you can ask me if they're right and that's fine, but I just don't want, I already have enough clutter in my life, I don't need your, I don't need your, your notebook torn out answers to questions. Your effort will be rewarded. So students who tend to do well in my classes tend to do these kinds of things. Students who don't do well in my class tend to do these kinds of things, right? There's a flip side to this, isn't there, right? Um, if you really get behind on the reading, again, this is oftentimes a symptom of, of, uh, of falling behind mentally with your effort, okay? It's not, I'm not expecting you to learn from reading the book, 
right? Um, but I am expecting you to put in the amount of time required in order to do well outside of class. And reading is one of those things that, that does that. Um, and it's going to be a lot. Like I said, we're going to knock out that whole thing. Okay, so we want to get to it quickly. Um, cramming is not good. So if you only read the book as if you need to know it for the information for the exam as opposed to integrated in as, as part of your life, there's going to be a problem, right? Because when it comes down to the final and I have to, and I, I'm trying to get you to synthesize information from chapter 16 with information from chapter two, you're going to have to integrate and understand both of that, both of those chapters, right, in order to do that successfully, right? So we're not looking for memorization here. And if somebody taught you in high school that science was about memorizing things, um, you should get your money back because it's absolutely not, okay? It's about understanding the world around you and that's what you want to do. Not memorizing the world around you, right? Yeah. It's understanding, right? These things that we talk about should make sense to you in an intuitive way. If I'm doing my job right, that will be the case. If you find yourself trying to memorize a lot, um, stop. It is not going to end well, okay? Um, and we need to have a conversation. We can figure out uh, other ways to learn, okay? So it's the, I don't get what he's talking about in class, so I'm just going to go home and read the book and I'll be all good. What do you think? Bad, 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 bad. Okay, so don't do that. If you find yourself thinking those thoughts, right, that's a sign of, of bad things to come. Uh, I've, I've never caught a student cheating in my class. Of course, it's not very easy to do on a written exam, is it? It, it, it makes it a little more difficult, I would say. You know, have the, you know, war, you know, the, Declaration of Independence written on your forearm or something like that, you know. Um, I've never caught a student cheating in my class, and I, I hope I never have to find a student cheating in my class. Do we even have to talk about this? No, I agree, right? I never have to talk about this. Uh, and the lack of effort will be evident. All right, content. You had a biology class in the past. I know you have, right? You, had, you couldn't graduate high school without it, I imagine, right? How much fun was that? What'd you do? Read. You read? You learned things out of the textbook, right? Memorized. <laughs> you memorized things. Yeah. Right, what else? Somebody started something. <laughs> Who took a biology class in high school? What, are you all shy? What'd you do? Don't make me call names, I swear I will. You cut things up, like pigs and onions. Uh, pigs, not onions. Pigs, not onions. Um, occasionally, you'll look at the cross-section of the onion under a microscope to look at like phases of mitosis and things oh, like wait, that. I think I did a, yeah, that's what I'm saying, right? You do, yeah. you do, yeah. right, right, right. <laughs> you, stain the, you stain the nuclear proteins, right, and you can see the nucleus of the, yeah, you did that. Anything else? So you cut things up, you stain an onion. What do you know about life? Anything? Yeah. Mm. Some things, right? Made of cells. What else? You feel like your biology education was beneficial to you? Do you have a better understanding of the world for having done that? You know where your pork comes from, right? You know your way around the inside of a pig, which is useful information. Don't get me wrong, right? Uh, I think we want to go a little farther than that. What do you think? Yeah. I'm not going to show you the cross-section of an onion. We're not going to cut a pig in half. In 102, you will, right? Uh, in 101, we're starting over, okay? We're calling a do-over on your education. All that stuff that you, that biology that you did in high school, right? We're gonna turn you over on your head. I wanna shake that out, 
Okay, some things might still be in there, right? I'm just gonna, I'm just, I'm just calling a do-over from the start. Okay, we're just gonna start it over again from a different perspective. From a perspective of understanding what's going on fundamentally with life on Earth. Okay, and we're gonna build up from there. Okay, so some of these things, as you remember your high school education, you might realize you have learned before, right? In some sort of cursory way, and that's fine, right? Uh, we'll go above and beyond in some cases, hopefully a lot of them, right? Some things you might find are a review, uh, when you talk about prophase and metaphase and anaphase and uh, things like that, stages of mitosis and stuff like that, you might, oh, these sound familiar, right? Because you memorized them, right, in the past from reading your biology textbook while you were cramming the night before an exam while watching Fox reruns, okay? So no wonder you don't remember anything about your biology class, right? Nobody told you how to do this stuff, right? So we're going to try to understand what's going on. We're not going to be doing a lot of memorization. Right, because um, it's just not so useful. It's just not so useful. All right, so what is it anyway? You took a biology class. Certainly they told you what it was. Did they? Study of life, right? Um, we were talking about vague comments earlier, right? You did one, a good one, and I gave an equally vague statement myself, so I can share, the, share, the, share that with you. Uh, study of life. Pretty vague, pretty vague. Doesn't really give you so much to go on there, you know? If we wanted to talk about what is life and answer that question, what is life anyway, right? If you wanted to find some helpful resources to answer that question, you can find the answer to that question in a lot of places. Um, the White Album by the Beatles has a song in there that discusses what life is. Rolling Stones, Pink Floyd, the Quran, the Torah, the Bible, just about every major work that is incorporated into pop culture has an answer to that question of what is life. If you want to answer that question, you're responsibly just as valid as anybody else's. You just get some Birkenstocks and a guitar, you go set it underneath the tree in the quad, and you wax on poetically with your friends about what life is. And you're going to come up with an answer that's perfectly reasonable and acceptable to you and your friends. Because the question as it is stands, what is life, is not science, it is philosophy. Okay, you just come up with some sort of what is life to me uh, that settles right with you, that describes what it is as you know it, right? Um, and you're really just kind of thinking about things, which is fine, which are things that you should be doing in college, which many of your instructors, and rightfully so, in your philosophy and perhaps even a sociology class or something like that, right, might be encouraging you to do. And it's good to think about those kind of things. Problem is, that's not necessarily what we're gonna be doing here. We're not gonna be meeting underneath the tree in the quad and talking about what is life and go around in a circle and each give some sort of uh, answer, right? Where we kind of pass the, pass the football to one person or another and whoever has the football answers the question, right? Um, so this doesn't give us too much to go on. It's a good definition for biology, but it's not a particularly useful one, okay? Because it doesn't lead us anywhere. It leads us down a path of thinking and philosophy as opposed to a path of science and doing, right? Because science is something you do with your hands, it's about experimentation and hypothesis testing, okay? So instead of answering the question, I'm gonna change the question and avoid, right? So somebody asks you a question, you don't know what the answer is, so you rephrase it into something that you can't answer. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm doing that, right? So I'm not going to answer this question. I'm gonna ask a different one, right? I'm gonna say life is not, or biology is not the study of life. I'm gonna say biology is the study of living systems. Now that gives us something to go with. Because then you can say, what is a living system? What are the properties of living systems? What do living systems have in common, right? That gives us somewhere to go, okay? For example, in this class, we're gonna be talking a lot about 
the chemical properties of living systems. Just to give a show of hands to demonstrate how unbelievably quickly I'm aging. Does anybody know who this is? <laughs> you don't. Okay, that's fine. Uh, so the question we could ask, what question or what components do we, or Roger Waters from Pink Floyd, as the case may be, comprise? What are we made of? Right? That might have some information, if we can answer that question, to bear on what a living system is. Living systems on Earth, although the table says humans, this applies to virtually all life on Earth. I say virtually just because there might be some strange exception out there that I'm not currently aware of. I'm just hedging my bets by saying that all life on Earth that I know of, right, has all these things in common. All life on Earth tends to be about 65% oxygen. All life on Earth tends to be about 18.5% carbon by weight. Oxygen's heavy. It's got a lot of neutrons, right? Um, all life on Earth has about 10% hydrogen. You have a lot of hydrogen. Hydrogen's really, really light, only has one proton, right? So you got a lot of it. It just doesn't add overall that much to your mass. How much do you weigh? 170, 160, 180. I was being nice, right? 180. Uh, you're about 10% uh, about of that is carbon, right? Uh, 10, 15, 20% of that is carbon, right? Um, about over half of that is just oxygen alone. Most of that oxygen is where, do you think? You're 70% water, right? Most of that oxygen is in the water, okay? Um, most of the carbon is in your muscle tissues, things like that. Hydrogen's everywhere. Um, the nitrogen, uh, which you are about three, four percent of by weight, is in the proteins. That's really only the only place in your body where you find a lot of nitrogen is in all of your proteins, so muscles and things like that. Um, those are the four elements that you most commonly are found by mass in the human body. Carbon. What does it mean when you write something on the board? It's probably a good idea because I don't do it often. C-H-O-N, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen. Okay, those are the four by mass most abundant elements in the human body. Okay, um, I usually ask that question on the first exam, and I usually ask it again on the final, just so you know. It's important. There's other stuff too, right? Uh, the human body, if you look at the periodic table, we all taken some sort of chemistry, right? Periodic table? Yes, you have a cursory knowledge that there is something called a periodic table. Not necessarily what it is, right? But you, you know, you know of its existence. Good, right? Um, there are, you know, table of elements. There are 92 naturally occurring elements. You know, the lightest is hydrogen. The heaviest is uranium. Okay, uh, and there's all the other stuff in between. The human body uses about the first 36 or 38. Um, usually, the heavier and heavier you go, then less and less there is of it. There's exceptions. You do have some heavy elements in your body, like iron. Okay, which is obviously in your Blood, right? Um, you don't have very many of those big, heavy things. Anybody take a multivitamin? Ladies, you're not taking multivitamins, of course. I, I take a multivitamin, for goodness sakes. Multivitamins? Anybody? Are you talking about like the Flintstone tablet? That'll do. That's fine. That's fine, right? Um, have you ever looked at the back of a multivitamin container? Yeah. What does it have? Zinc, copper, 
aluminum, right? You have all kinds of interesting metals and transition metals and things like that. And you think, man, what the heck do I do with iodine, right? Uh, and stuff like that. Um, there are some of these elements that we're gonna call a trace element, okay? That are very important to very specific reactions in your body, but they're just not that common, right? Where do you get your iodine today? Salt, absolutely, right? Um, you use iodine for pretty much one thing. You make a growth hormone in your thyroid, right? And if you get an iodine deficiency, right, then you get the precursors for those hormones and your thyroid starts to swell up. And we call that a goiter, right? And you get this big swollen thyroid gland on your neck, right? Um, in the olden days, olden days, pre-industrial revolution, I'll say, um, it used to be a, a big problem in inland landlocked communities, right? Most iodine, on Earth is in the oceans. And if you lived near an ocean that were eating seafood and things like that, then you were getting iodine in your diet. As we westwardly expanded, a la uh, Manifest Destiny, right? History? The American West is our God-given right, right? Manifest Destiny and westward expansion. Uh, we got farther and farther away from those oceans, okay? And the amount of iodine in our diets got less and less and less, and more and more people started to get goiters. So the government intervened, as they want to do in cases like this, and they iodized our salt, okay? So um, if you go and get a Big Mac or something like that, you'll get enough salt and iodine to last you about 15 years, all right? You don't need a, you don't need a lot of it. Um, you don't need a lot of it, but you do need some, right? Iodine and these other kind of strain. You, you have some biochemical reactions that do require um, uh, a copper, copper atoms, right, as part of their transitional, transitional reaction, right? So, uh, not much of them, though. Uh, you know where your calcium is, in your bones, right? Um, you use that calcium to move your muscles, okay? Um, when I'm moving around up here and doing my intellectual gyrations and gesticulations and things like that, what I'm really doing, I'm selectively releasing calcium onto my muscles, and that's causing them to, to contract, okay? Um, if I start running out of enough calcium, in my muscles to get them to contract, I'm gonna start getting it from somewhere else, right? I'm gonna start leaching that calcium out of my bones to fuel my muscles. Ladies, this is gonna start happening to you when you turn about 40 or 45, okay? And you're gonna develop a condition called osteoporosis, okay? So the older you get, the more calcium you have to have in your diet, right? And one of the best things that you can do, ladies, is maintain proper exercise habits. If you keep putting stresses on those bones, you'll keep depositing calcium within them. Because if you start getting low on calcium to move your muscles, your body's gonna start removing them from your bones and you're gonna get porous bones and you're gonna break a hip because the hip is not very well designed anyway, right? I think it breaks all the time. And you don't want fragile bones. Guys, eh, we're all good, we don't get that, right? It seems to be an exclusively female uh, thing. Who knows why, right? But there it is. Uh, phosphorus, you know where your phosphorus is? It's, nobody does, it's okay. Um, uh, maybe a little. Um, some is, we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, fueling the activity of actinomycin is gonna require a lot of phosphorus. You use it as an energy carrier more than anything else. Um, most of the phosphorus in your body is tied up in your DNA, right, as a molecule that you use to bridge one nucleotide to another. You essentially have phosphate backbones on your DNA. And every cell in your body has how much DNA? This much? Say when? It's about six feet in every cell. You have about two and a half billion nucleotide strand in each cell. In each cell, right? It's a lot of DNA. Thankfully, it's very, very thin. Yeah. Uh, potassium, sulfur, sodium, okay? All kinds of things that you have uh, within you. And 
as you get into heavier and heavier elements, you tend to get less and less of these, uh, of these components. So you should definitely know the first four, C-H-O-N. We're gonna focus a lot on these four. Biology 101 is about these four. Biology 102 is about the rest of these things, right? Um, the fundamental units of life and the understanding of life as we know it is an emergent property of these four right here, okay? So questions about the chemistry of life and what makes a chemical or what makes a living system, what are, are they comprised of? Uh, we can talk about how our elements are structured, okay? Not just what are the elements, but how are they structured? How do we make big molecules that are useful to us as living organisms? Uh, like DNA and proteins, amino acids, carbohydrates, glycolipids, fats, things like that. How do we structure our large molecules? How do they interact with each other? Okay, so here's a couple of uh, chemical elements interacting. Right here, right? Paris and Nicole doing what they do on the intellectual level of atoms, pretty much. I think it just on tape slandered Paris and Nicole, but that's okay. Um, uh, your elements and your atoms and your molecules interact with each other all the time. There's a relationship that you may or may not remember from high school biology between your DNA and your proteins. That's what your DNA is. It's instructions for making proteins, right? So we're talking about a relationship and an interaction between your DNA and amino acids. Okay, and that's common to living systems on Earth as we know them. So going through this process that we've just been talking about, where we take a big, complex, uh, unified system like Paris Hilton, okay, and try to understand why she likes to get in and out burger at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is a perfectly legitimate question, right? We can start asking some biological questions. Well, what is she made of? Okay, and does that help us out at all, right? This is the, prop, this is the principle and, the, and the, uh, the process of reductionism. You take something big and complex, like a living system, and the smallest, uh, simplest living system on Earth is pretty complex, yes? Yes, they are, right? Try to break them down into something that's more manageable to understand. I want to understand why Paris Hilton do the things she do, right? Because um, we're, we're fascinated by this, whether it enthrills us or disgusts us, because we all read the TMZ website, like, daily, right? Um, well, maybe I just tipped my hand on that a little bit, but uh, we want to try to understand that. But she is too complex for us to understand as a whole. That's a hard question to answer. Why does Paris Hilton do the things that she does? Um, so we use our properties and principles of reductionism to break Paris Hilton down into finer levels that are easier to understand, or at least more manageable. You do the same thing with your car, okay? Um, you drove today? Somebody? Anybody? Most of you probably, I certainly did, that's for sure, right? You want to understand how your car does what it does. You know, if you try to understand it all at once as a whole, uh, you might have a hard time, right? Uh, so it's easier to break it down into its smaller systems, okay? Uh, if we want to think about Perry Ellis, the gentleman that I just had in one of the earlier slides, and we want to understand his properties and what he does, he is mostly made of what? Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, and nitrogen, right? Those things tend to be squishy, right? Those things tend to be your left arm, right? <laughs> uh, versus your automobile, mostly made of metal, steel, iron, those kind of things. Plastic, more plastic by the minute, right? Uh, composites, fiber composites, things like that. Those things tend to be hard, rigid, 
Okay, so what something is made of, right, is certainly not going to tell you how your car runs, but it can certainly start explaining some of the properties of it. You, it's not necessarily going to give you your answer, but you'll be making progress. Okay, why does my car weigh so much? Well, going to say, because I think it's made of mostly iron. You know, of course it's going to weigh a lot. All right, so this is reductionism. We just kind of went through this brief example of your car, right? We can try to understand, well, the engine, we can go down to systems level, exhaust, electrical system, carburetor, well, I just aged myself again, fuel injector, right? Things like that, much like we can understand it with you. Why does Paris Hilton like it in out burger at two o'clock in the morning? Well, she needs to go to carbon, right? Um, and she has a digestive system that requires daily use. And she's a mammal, so she needs to eat about 2,000 calories a day, given her size. Right, and sometimes at two o'clock in the morning, man, you're up and get nothing better to do. You get hungry, you know, because she needs energy and carbon, right? So, and in and out does have a lot of carbon and it certainly has a lot of energy in it and she does require some sodium, right? So maybe in and out's a good idea, you know? So you can start at least biologically coming up with some, uh, at least uh, almost childish and ridiculous, but some concrete statements about why Paris Hilton does some of the things that she does, much like you could do with your car. Okay, so reductionism, okay? Um, the problem with reductionism is that the farther away we go using reductionism from the entire system that we're trying to understand, right, um, the more detail we lose along the way, okay? So maybe what we really wanna do is learn about Paris Hilton's psychology. Yeah, I mean, you really wanna know why she does the strange, well, we used to anyway. Nobody cares anymore, right? Uh, why she does the strange things that she does, right? And we can learn about that from a biological point of view by using reductionism, right? If we look at Abraham Lincoln, for example, what do you think of right now? Five people. Beard, oxygen. Beard, oxygen, oxygen, <laughs> oxygen. The hat, I know you're right. The hat, right? What else? Log cabin. President, log cabin. Uh, thank you. You're the only. I tried to get my 6:30 class this morning to say, at least somebody say the Emancipation Proclamation. What is the most important thing that he has done in his entire life, right? Did he wear a hat? No, it was the Emancipation Proclamation, right? There was that Civil War thing, but that was inevitable, right? It, it didn't have a lot to do with that, right? He signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Okay, um, uh, that's what you want to know about when you see something like that. You want to know about what was going through. Lincoln's life at the time where he thought that the Emancipation Proclamation was a good idea. What was going on in his life was if he didn't, you know, get the African-Americans into the war, he was going to lose is what actually was part of probably the argument going on there. But you want to know about what Abraham Lincoln is doing as an individual, right? And you can get at that by using our principles of reductionism by saying, you know, it does have a lot of oxygen. You know, and you have a lot of carbon. You do learn things about Abraham Lincoln as a biological individual, right, that may or may not be going down that far into what he's chemically made of, you might, might not go that far into finding out these things you want to know, right? But you will be coming up with concrete answers, right? So the farther away that you go down this hierarchy of scale, right, using these principles of reductionism, oftentimes you start getting kind of far away, okay, from, from what you actually want to know. Um, we call these interesting things that are maybe unpredictable, you know, on that organismal scale, emergent properties. Okay, so new properties that emerge with each step upward, okay, in this hierarchy. We want to know why your car goes as fast as it does in miles per hour on the beltway, flat out. Well, nobody goes flat out on the beltway. Well, maybe they do sometimes go flat out on the beltway, right? Uh, your car goes uh, downhill, uh, floored, in an open road. I'll be an optimist, 115 miles an hour. Why not 116? Why not 114? Okay. 
So you want to find out why your car goes as fast as it does. What are you going to do? You're going to look at the engine, the gasoline, the fuel injectors, right? Because you're not driving a car with a carburetor. Okay, you're going to look at the air filter, fuel filter, you know, water pump. All right, you can go through these systems using reductionism. Right, ultimately, right, when you start looking at things like engine and octane rating and things like that, you can come up with some pretty reliable estimates. What are going to get you pretty close to 115 miles an hour? If you go too far using reductionism, you're going to say, well, it is made of iron. You know, that's not going to tell you a lot about why your car goes as fast as it does, right? Um, so what we really want to know oftentimes uh, are these big, interesting things, right, which we're going to call emergent properties, right? There's these unforeseeable, unexplainable, um, or I should say unpredictable um, properties that emerge as you go higher and higher in the hierarchy. So you cannot understand Abraham Lincoln as he is completely as a biological organism doing the things that he does. He just can't do it. He's too complex, right? So you start reducing him down into his uh, political situation, into his biological situation, into his economic situation, using these principles of reductionism. And you can understand those certainly more completely. And they'll give you some information. Um, but the farther and farther down you go, right, uh, away from Abe Lincoln as an individual, um, the more concrete your answer is going to be, the more precise your answer is going to be, but the farther away from what you want to know, you're also going to be, right? So you kind of need to strike a balance. You can kind of see how reductionism and emergent properties are kind of two sides of the same coin, right? They're part of the same process. Because we have unbelievably complex things that we're trying to understand here, right? Yeah. Okay, um, and we're not going to get it all at once. Understand this tree. Good? bad, right? You're going to, well, leaves, stems, you know, photosynthesis, all that kind of stuff. You'll start reducing and making progress, right? And the more you reduce, though, the less you'll actually know about the tree as a whole. So you got to kind of go back and forth down that and back up and down that chain, right? Sometimes you're going to be reducing. Sometimes that's going to give you information about what you want to know. Sometimes it's not. But that's all you can do. That's all you can really do. Okay, so you can kind of see how reductionism and emergent properties are kind of, I don't want to say opposites, maybe I'll say the inverse of each other. When you reduce, you're going down to finer and finer, more understandable levels, okay? With the caveat that the farther down you go, right, um, the more emergent properties you're not going to be able to predict from that level, right? Because these emergent properties are, how does the engine interact uh, with the exhaust system, right? Um, how does your circulatory system interact with your uh, gastrointestinal tract, right? How does photosynthesis interact with aerobic respiration? Okay, that's a question that we're gonna talk about, all right? Um, so those interactions sometimes result in unforeseeable and unpredictable dynamics that are very, very interesting because we want to understand what is, what is life, right? Uh, so talk about a vague question, right? So we're gonna reduce, we're gonna reduce a lot. We're gonna reduce all the way. Okay, we're going to reduce, oh, not quite all the way. We're not going to go down into string theory or quarks. We'll reduce down to protons, neutrons, and electrons, though. That's for sure. Because a lot of what I do, Perry Ellis, Abraham Lincoln, Paris Hilton, and Nicole, what we all do, right, a lot of it is actually easily explained by what our protons, neutrons, and electrons do. Okay, charges interacting and things like that. All right. So the question then is from this. Okay, this laundry list of what Paris Hilton is, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, blah, blah, blah. Could you predict that? No. no, you couldn't. You'd learn something about her, but you can't necessarily predict that it would be that in all of its pop culture glory, right? 
So um, these emergent properties can be unpredictable, right? And you don't get the complete picture by reducing all the time. You get good information and it's often very precise, but you don't necessarily learn everything that you want to. Something is better than nothing. Okay. So that is essentially is the sum up of the chemical properties of living systems. We can also look at how living systems interact. Okay, as part of this, you know, what can we say about living systems? We can see how they interact with each other. If I had to summarize and describe the entirety of life on Earth in four words, this is what I would do. You ready? Pins at the ready? Right? Energy flows. That was good. You're wrong, but it was good. It, it does, it does. Those are not the last two words, though. I encourage your input, though. Nutrient cycle. This is your biology 101 mantra for the next 16 weeks. When in doubt, if you ever find some time on your hands, get up from whatever you're doing, face the Nova Annadale campus, and say five times, energy flows, nutrients recycle. Energy flows, nutrients recycle. That is life on Earth in four words, period. Okay, that should be your, you should tattoo it to your forehead. When somebody else sees you, they should say, oh, energy flows, nutrients recycle, right? And you'll get it very well by the end of the, end of the 16 weeks. Energy comes into the Earth via sunlight, electromagnetic radiation. Yes, is this any surprise to anyone? You may have learned that in high school. If so, you can retain that, okay? We don't need to shake that out. Um, it does, you go outside and you can feel it, it gets hot, especially wearing jeans and a nice dark shirt like that. Um, most of this electromagnetic radiation is gonna bounce off of me because I'm wearing a lot of white, right? But you can feel it. You can feel energy coming in from the sun. Uh, that energy will be captured by some biological organisms that can do interesting things with it. We call them I was going to just be general and say plants, right? Anything that's photosynthetic, right? We're going to call them primary producers. They are, uh, they've evolved a long time ago, three, three and a half billion years ago, a very interesting reaction, biochemical reaction. It lets them convert electromagnetic radiation into chemical bond energy, okay? Without that, life on Earth would not be possible, okay? If you ever want to find out whether life exists on another planet, you look for the metabolic byproducts of something that looks like photosynthesis. Okay, um, without that, it's all over, okay? Um, that energy came in from the sun and is now, some of it, well, about 90% of it bounced off into space. Um, about 5% of it just kind of stuck, stuck around in the atmosphere and made us hot, right? The other 5% was actually used by a plant to make a complex sugar, glucose, right, uh, that is biologically useful. Then what's gonna happen to that energy that's in the plant? It's gonna sit there for the end of time. Eventually, something is going to consume that. More people in California would consume those in Virginia. A lot of vegetarians, right, uh, in California. Um, I have met Virginians that eat salad, though. They do it for the blue cheese dressing more than anything else, but that's fine, <laughs> right? Um, so these organisms that we're gonna call animals are going around and they're consuming, right, these high energy sugary molecules that these plants are making. Okay, so now the energy has gone from the plant into the animal. Has energy flowed? Yes. Energy has flowed, 
right? Um, and the carbon that was in that plant is now in the consumer, okay? As opposed to the consumee, right? So uh, eventually we can follow that a little bit longer, right? Eventually whatever it was that ate that plant is going to fall over dead, get eaten by something else or die and fall over, right? Let's say it dies and falls over. Let's keep it simple. Dies, fall over, uh, what happens to it? Is its carbon consumed? What happens to the energy? It goes into things like bacteria, fungi, nematodes, bot fly larva. Okay, all kinds of, yeah, decomposers uh, have a run riot over it. Okay, um, and eventually all of that carbon is put back into the soil from whence it came, ashes to ashes and dust to dust, right? What happens to that carbon and all those molecules once they're in the ground? Get absorbed by a plant, right? That is going to be taking that, that chemistry, that carbon, that nitrogen, that oxygen, that hydrogen, combining it with electromagnetic radiation and making big complex sugars out of it. Okay, so energy has flowed through this ecosystem and that flowing of that energy has caused that carbon to go in a circle. It has cycled through, right? How does energy go into your car? Gasoline. How does it leave? Kinetic energy and heat, right? Your engine gets hot. You want to convert as much as you can into forward motion, right? What you can't convert into forward motion, you convert into heat, okay? You do the same thing. Oh boy, do you, you do, right? I want to convert as much as my energy as I can into growth and babies, okay? Um, as you, in a Darwinian view, you will as well after you graduate, after you get a job, right? Um, uh, and we lose a lot of that energy, whoever is heat, okay? So energy flowing, nutrients cycling. Here's some energy flowing, okay? Out of the grass and into the cow, yes? Excellent. Here's some energy flowing from this organism formerly known as a zebra. Yeah, here's a hoof over here. I think there's another hoof over here as well. Um, it, was, uh, it used to be a zebra, a fine zebra, but a, a former zebra. I don't know what this thing is in the middle of my slide here. Whoa, now we did it. Is this an omen? Okay. Uh, so here's some energy flowing as well, right? Energy is flowing from the zebra into the lions, and uh, the carbon is going that way as well. Okay, eventually these carbons, or these, uh, these lions, they're not eternal. We all saw the Lion King, bad things happen to top carnivores all the time, and uh, a, a rampaging herd of wildebeest will get to them, or maybe they'll just fall over dead, who knows, right? Uh, but the, the, uh, the decomposers will eventually have their way, right? Uh, and they will return back to the savanna African soil from whence they came, and more grass and trees will grow out of them. Right, and all the meantime, this process of this cycling nutrients is fueled by this flow of energy coming in from the sun, getting used and leaving the ecosystem as heat, causing these, this nutrition, this nu these nutrients to cycle through the earth, okay? Uh, you have a place in this as well, okay? You're not above uh, nutrient cycling and energy flowing. You have a firm place in this, uh, in this, uh, in this food web that we call life on earth. Um, here is some carbon and some energy and a lot of salt, right, uh, flowing from several animals, I suspect, several different kinds of animals, I suspect, right, mystery meat, right, into these lovely, lovely people. Um, I am tempted to suspect mother-daughter, but uh, who knows, who knows, right? Uh, if you eat too many hot dogs, you go from looking, this is a case study, right? You start looking <laughs> like that, and then you end up, end up looking like that, 
right? Um, but you, you have a place in this ecosystem as well, right? When you eat meat or plants, you're taking part in this energy flowing <laughs> nutrients recycling. How many calories a day do you cost? 2,000, right? Um, if you don't get 2,000 calories, can you do that? Well, you can't, you will lose weight, right? Because you, you've stored, because you live in America, you've eaten too much, right? And some days you get 2,500, 3,000, right? You can pack that away for later, right? Uh, you can't do that, you can't do that indefinitely, right? You're gonna run out, right? You need to get your carbon from somewhere. You need to get your energy from somewhere, like hot dogs. Um, so you have a place, right, in this flowing of energy, the cycling of nutrition. The only difference is you've just made it elegant. <laughs> but don't think that you're not a part of it, right? So you have a place in this ecosystem, just like the zebra, just like the grass, just like the cows, just like the lions, just like Paris. All right? Uh, with that in mind, read Chapter 1. I'll see you on Wednesday. Have a good Tuesday.